0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: So is anybody else a little bit
2: bored? A little bit, yeah.
0: I mean, I'm I'm busy, but I feel like the tone overall is just soothing. But, we, soothing. but you
1: don't, we don't live in suspense for the next tweet. We don't.
0: What are you, you like an adrenaline junkie? We
1: don't, we don't have the horse in the hospital thing going on about like, oh, what's the horse going to do today? And I just want to say, you know, I'm not and being entertained right now.
2: I need the president to get on Twitter right now. I need, I need some, I need to know what he's watching on TV, how he's spending his time. I need some anger tweeting. Preferably, he could do it on the toilet.
3: I don't even, like, Ben is, like, the person who, like, you know, the doctors remove the axe from his head, and he's like, yeah, <laughs> you know. that was holding in my brain. Put it back.
2: <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the domestic in the extreme edition. Dun, dun. Yeah. The real world is normal again, so we have to make everything sound extreme. I'm not bored. It's just more that, like, I don't remember what a predictable, semi-predictable schedule is like.
1: I think we should turn rational security into a monster truck show.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Being an audio program, that will be interesting.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you're right, though, Shane, because what's going on is that the White House is like, on Tuesday, we're going to have a coronavirus briefing. And then on Tuesday, they have a coronavirus briefing right. and it's like informative and they answer questions. And then, you know, it's like if they said there was going to be an infrastructure week, there would actually be an infrastructure week. We can plan around it.
2: Right, right. Nobody comes out and tells you to inject things into yeah. your veins. No bleach. bleach. No bleach. There's not even, not, not even close. I mean, like, they're letting Anthony Fauci talk.
3: Also, just like the idea that you can take things at face value. Like, a call, like Memcom comes out and you're like, oh, okay, I don't need to wait two weeks for the leaked version of this to be contradicted. Like, I can just respond on the basis of this? Are you sure? Okay.
2: It's like the president had a call with Vladimir Putin and while the relationship is totally crazy, the call was totally normal. And this is what they said. Also, isn't it nice to get the readout from the White House first and not the Kremlin press shop? And here's the thing. I can cancel my subscription now. We're not going to
1: learn the names of any like staffers
0: who leak. Who
1: like, There's not yeah. going to be like, this call with... Putin isn't going to produce three months from now a scandal when the actual conversation becomes public because somebody wrote a memo to an IG
0: about it. So you're saying the deep state is going to remain hidden. That's what you're saying. No, I'm going to
1: say that what was released was close enough to the truth that no one's going to feel like obligated. (laughs) I get it.
2: How a boy can dream. Uh, I am here in... (laughs) <laughs> the virtual jungle studio <laughs> with my good friends that you've been hearing yeah. Ben Wittis tomorrow, Coffman Wittis and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody.
3: Hi, everyone. Seems hi
2: rested and bushy tailed, ready bored. to take on the day. What bored? Trump oh, even
1: board. said. Trump even said if I didn't do this stuff, you guys would be so bored. And uh, he, he Susan did and say I quoted, in his, qu- quoted him in our book about how you know if he didn't you know, come out as entertainer in chief, we would be bored without him. And here we are. It's like barely, it's a week in and I'm bored. That makes sense.
2: Can't quit me, baby. Can't quit (laughs) me. On the podcast this week. The storming of the Capitol on January 6th has exposed the long-simmering threat of domestic extremism in the United States. So how will the Biden administration combat it? Protests break out across Russia as a prominent dissident returns home. And can we just skip the impeachment and get right to the 14th Amendment? People are missing the low-hanging fruit here. We're going to talk about it. There's an easy way out of all of this. Although impeachment, not boring. Although this trial might be kind of boring. We'll talk about why. We'll get to that. Anyway. All right. This week on the Boring Podcast, let's talk about domestic extremism. Definitely not boring. Since the attacks on January 6th, obviously there has been a renewed focus that might be understating it. um, Perhaps a new appreciation uh, for many people in the country, uh, perhaps less so for people in law enforcement and in Homeland Security about groups like the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, um, many of the kinds of organized groups, some people call them domestic terrorists, who were present at the Capitol on January 6th, who advertised in advance their intentions to interfere with the counting of electoral votes. Obviously, still investigations ongoing into what role those groups played in terms of organizing themselves, organizing with each other, potential contacts with people in the government. We're going to learn a lot more about that. But It does seem to have occasioned uh, at least the opportunity for journalists like me to call people up and ask them what they think about how this is going to change the way that the FBI and the Homeland Security Department approach this threat from domestic extremists. So, Ben, let's start with you. In a lot of important ways, I think January 6th is analogous to 9-11 and the 9-11 attacks, but it is not 9-11. Disagree with me on you if you want. On that. But I think that we're not going to see a wholesale reorientation of law enforcement, of homeland security, of the intelligence community around the threat posed by white nationalists or extremists like the Boogaloo, the Proud Boys. But these groups are now brightly shining on the radar, I think. And FBI, the FBI and DHS have a powerful incentive to go after them. So presuming you agree with me on that, how should we expect that to start? playing out? And and how should we differentiate that from when we think about the war on terror?
1: Yeah, so it's a really good question. And I think my answer to it is not going to satisfy a lot of people. So the first point is, I very much agree with you that we are not going to see a wholesale rejiggering of the entire security apparatus to address this. And the reason is not that people don't take it seriously, but that you don't actually need to rejigger all that much in order to address it, at least not in terms of authorities. So people who are calling for major new legislation, uh, there's a decent argument to be had about that. I tend not to favor a major new piece of domestic terrorism legislation, but people who are calling for that, at least the ones who are, uh, who understand the issue well, will acknowledge that it won't make illegal anything that isn't already illegal, right? So you're not talking about criminalizing a whole lot of conduct that is currently legal. Generally speaking, it is impossible to commit an, any significant act of domestic terrorism without violating a whole host of federal laws for which there are robust criminal penalties available. And so you don't need to kind of rewrite the federal criminal code here, though there are some important sort of symbolic issues that are worth addressing. And then the third issue is that unlike foreign terrorist organizations, domestic terrorist movements have, because they are you know the first amendment operates domestically and doesn't operate abroad and the fourth amendment mm-hmm. operates uh, domestically and operates differently and only toward Americans abroad or US persons abroad you are much more constrained in certain types of surveillance activity and in uh, certain types of monitoring activity than you are with respect in 10, basically intelligence activity than you are with respect to groups abroad. And so when you put all this together, you say, we have the tools we need. It's actually very hard to increase the utility of those tools. What is missing is a kind of relentless focus on this. Uh, And that is a policy decision and a resource allocation decision that I think has already started to change the Homeland Security Department, even under Trump, designated white supremacists as the most significant domestic terrorism threat. The FBI has said this repeatedly, and I think there has been in the senior levels of federal law enforcement a renewed seriousness about this over the last few years. Translating that into the kind of relentless focus that we have seen on Islamist terror groups is a a work in progress. And it's something that's going to, I think it is something that's going to happen, but it is also something that takes a bit of time. Turning a ship like that takes a lot of time and you do want to do it in a way that you don't lose focus on ISIS, which still wants to blow a lot of things up here too.
2: Tammy.
0: Yeah. So I, I suspect that the biggest change, if there's an actual change at the federal level, is going to be in DHS, where, you know, despite that uh, intelligence assessment being given to Congress, that provoked controversy and it provoked backlash from Trump appointees. And DHS really saw its ability to tackle this issue um, hampered by the Trump administration um, and its political preferences. And so being unbound, unconstrained from that. I think will lead to a real change in DHS and hopefully to resource reallocations. I've seen a lot of kind of bitter statements in my little Middle East world and from folks on the left over the last couple of weeks since January 6th about how, oh, you know, now that everyone recognizes that, that uh, right-wing extremism is a terrorist threat, they're going to, you know, import all of the techniques of the war and terror to the domestic front. We're going to have, you know, intrusive survey. Are they going to do to these white people what they've been doing to Muslim communities since 9-11, basically? And I understand the bitterness and I understand the skepticism, but I actually think that there's an opportunity here for the federal government under a Biden administration that is so sensitive to trying to unify the country in and understand people's underlying grievances and concerns, there's an opportunity to develop a smarter approach to countering violent extremism at home than the one that we had abroad and than the one we've had at home toward Islamist terrorism. Maybe we can get better at this overall. Maybe we can come up with CVE, countering violent extremism programs that aren't just dumb propaganda. Maybe we can reset the relationship between federal and local law enforcement and demilitarize local law enforcement, which was militarized as a consequence of 9-11 and as a consequence of the federal government telling local police departments that they were the front line of homeland defense against the Islamist extremists. Like, this is a chance to fix all that, and I would love to see the federal government take that seriously.
3: Yeah, So look, I think it's important to be candid that the kind of the issues here predate Donald Trump, and the Obama administration undertook a real sort of rebranding effort um, to talk about countering violent extremism, um, sort of as applied to right wing movements. And I, I think it was pretty well known within the federal government that that wasn't what was happening in reality. That CVE was predominantly focused on Islamic extremism, and that there was a gap. Between between the in, like the investigative priorities and focus, um, and sort of the actual work being done, and the presentation of uh, you know kind of what threats they might be focused on, or the even-handed nature of this, and so, um, and, and that was one source of concern whenever it sort of got handed over to the Trump administration that this was sort of an area that was uh, ripe for abuse, and and in fact sort of um, was abused. Right, remember the the early days of Sebastian Gorka and his wife and. The calling it what it is, and right, sort of rebranding all of that stuff. You know, I, I agree with Ben. The, the laws are on the books. Um, it's a question of how the federal government organizes itself, conceptualizes the threat, and actually devotes time and resources to addressing it. Yes, there are some complicated First Amendment questions, but they're not impossible to get around. Um, you know, that there are minor complications that need to be sort of accounted for. But, um, you know, we have a long history of investigating violent militia movements. We have a long history of investigating the Ku Klux Klan and hate crimes, um, right? So this is not, this isn't our first rodeo and sort of understanding how to address and counter violent movements within the domestic context and and within the protections of the First Amendment. Um, I think there are two places in which there actually is a question of sort of whether or not the existing laws are sufficient or satisfactory. Um, so one is sort of a question of the intervention points. So obviously the, pr- the primary difference between um, you know, Islamic terrorism and, and right-wing extremism, uh, as two examples here, is that we have the existence of material support laws. And so that means that when you post on Facebook your undying devotion to ISIS, that provides a predicate for the FBI to come and knock on your door and ask what's going on and sort of investigate further. And whenever you um. Express cons- uh, you know similar sympathies or affections for you know uh, militia groups that advocate for killing police officers or overthrowing the United States government. There's a less clear sort of ability to intervene, and so I'm um, sort of thinking about how to tackle that particular question. It's really really complicated. Um, the the clearest sort of um, I think analogy is gang designations in in the um, in the domestic context. There's actually a really fascinating amount of case law that have that sort of developed around Juggalos and the ins- followers of the insane clown posse um, who have been desi- have been hit with a gang designation, even for individuals who have not participated in, um, uh, in that case, uh, organized crime and drug trafficking um, and have, uh, you know, faced consequences like, you know, losing custody battles and um, uh, employment issues. And, and so there actually is a case law being developed. It, it's, it's a relatively complicated one. Um, but sort of figuring out how to address that kind of intervention point, um, you know, to allow... Basically, law enforcement to get involved at earlier points and and to and to um, incentivize them to do that. The other place in which I think there's a real question about the um, sufficiency of existing law, or at least the sufficiency of how we apply existing law, is the increasing internationalization of white supremacist movements. Um, the reason why we usually have or believe that there's a need for the federal government to sort of take primary control is because they have unique capacities. Um, whenever we think about foreign terrorist organizations. Um, right? to sort of to investigate and and track and respond to um, uh, those types of threats. Um, Now that we're seeing more and more sort of of these right wing movements, these white supremacist movements, really taking on international characteristics. I I think there's a real question about um, the federal government's role and need to sort of step in, in a way that they they haven't necessarily in the past. And, And that's evolving and developing. And usually we want the law to not get ahead of the facts on the ground. So a little bit of a lag is healthy. But I think that's one other place that sooner rather than later, we're going to have to also confront that feature.
2: You know, we'll talk about this maybe more in the impeachment segment, but I just want to tee up the idea that I wonder if Republicans don't take seriously the impeachment process and, and therefore don't hold Donald Trump accountable for his role in inciting the riot on January 6th, and there's already very strong indicators that they're not going to hold him accountable. We'll talk about that. Whether that just undermines the entire premise that this group of people who were at, uh, at this riot are actually domestic security threats. I mean, if you can't even take seriously the role of the president in stoking actual militant members who then stormed the Capitol can we really expect to have a coherent policy towards addressing them i don't know i I'll, we'll maybe talk about that more but ben you had a point you wanted to make
1: yeah a couple a couple quick things uh the first is that one important advantage that federal law enforcement has with respect to white supremacist and militia movements is they don't have the significant cultural and linguistic barriers associated with investigating uh, international jihadist movements, right? So in the international jihadist context, you have a significant linguistic barrier, which is that we don't have that many people who are fluent in in Arabic for analytical purposes, but, but more importantly, for infiltration purposes. You know, that's just been a thing. That's been a problem for the intelligence community for a long time. When the FBI decided to penetrate the Klan, it did it quickly and easily. And, you know, setting up a, a group of people to, you know, and you see that as well in the the relative ease of getting informants in the uh, context of the uh, Michigan plot and the speed with which they're able to arrest people now. This is a relatively easy investigative target compared to other entities that we uh, look at.
0: Especially because they've filmed themselves
1: and put it well, on the internet. Well, that's right. They're not, you know, they're not that bright. Um, uh, the, but the second thing on Susan's point, with which I really agree, uh, you know, it is not a terrible thing for law enforcement counterterrorism priorities to change between 2015 and now. And, you know, in 2015, Jim Comey testified in alarm as the head of the FBI, that he had multiple ISIS investigations open in each of every one of the 50 states. You know, ISIS was a big enough deal as it is, tra- you know, going through this period of its maximum prestige, where it is suddenly attractive to people all over the world, including shockingly large numbers of people here. That is not happening right now. What is happening right now is that a camper van is blowing up in downtown Nashville. A uh, large number of hooligans are showing up at the former president's direction and storming the capital of the United States and killing people, right? And in like it is a perfectly reasonable thing to look at the counterterrorism landscape in 2015 and make one set of judgments about what the critical threats are and make a different set in 2021. And I think you know, that is a fluidity that is probably a good thing.
2: Well, and we should also just remember, too, that prior to nine eleven, the biggest terrorist attack in the United States was committed by a white guy blowing up a federal building. Right? Yep. So and we've seen this before. Uh, and we've seen this movie. We've seen this movie.
3: And, and let's also note just just briefly there that the incoming Attorney General, um, the prosecution of that crime, was one of the formative professional experiences of Merrick Garland's career. And so, actually, yeah, if there's great. anyone who is, I think, really well positioned to kind of tackle this moment and and sort of a bizarre or or odd cyclical, uh, you know, sort of feature of, of his career, Garland actually is is a Really, really well positioned person to do it. I'm
2: gonna kick some racist ass. Damn. Okay. Have you really? Speaking of movies, them? oh, I have feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Many of them. We'll be talking about them for a while. Oh, uh, speaking of movies we've seen before, Russia, Russia, Russia. You have to say it with an R at the end. Russia, Russia, Russia. Russia,
1: Russia, Russia. Russia.
2: You can't stop talking about Russia. Well actually we can't stop talking about Russia because a lot is going on in Russia right now. Uh Alexei Navalny, the uh I guess I would hazard to say probably the most prominent Putin critic uh on the stage today. Uh you will remember him because he was poisoned with Novichok uh that Russian intelligence operatives laced in his underwear, a fact that he actually got them to divulge to him by pretending to be their boss on the phone, which tells you that Navalny is a badass and Russian spies are fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but they get the job done almost apparently. Anyway, Navalny had left the country. I came back this weekend, dropped a nearly two hour long YouTube video exposing this palace that Vladimir Putin Uh, apparently built for himself after plundering the the riches of state resources for the past 30 years. Uh, So Navalny's being Navalny and showing back up. And there were protests all across Russia in support of him. He was arrested on a pretty bogus charge uh, and put back in jail for 30 days. Anyway, uh, great time for the new president to talk to Vladimir Putin and say, unlike the last guy, we're not taking any of your shit. So... (laughs) Anyway, I have strong feelings <laughs> on Russia. I have a lot of strong feelings today. So I, could, I
0: could see that
2: yeah, he may not have actually said that, but I feel like in so many words, he may have said it, and that this call would
1: not was, bored. There is a new sheriff in town, Mr. Putin.
2: Did I see someplace I don't know if the, the story is apocryphal, but that Biden met with Putin once and said, "I'm looking into your soul, and I can see it's empty."
1: No. I can't imagine Biden would say that. I don't
2: think he said that. This was filtering around on Twitter. This may be fan fiction. Yeah. Joe Biden fan fiction.
3: Diplomatic fan fiction. I think it's
2: going around, but it gives you an idea of what's in the air. Anyway, they did have their first call, uh, Tammy, and the White House, not the Kremlin, helpfully put out a readout uh, about it. Talk a little bit about how the stage is set during this call uh, between these two leaders Obviously, the relationship is completely different than with President Trump. Uh, and what you think were the most important things for, for Biden to achieve in that call?
0: Yeah, look, it, it was actually a really complicated context for this phone call because although we think of Trump as someone who was um, super solicitous, not just of Russia's interest, but of Putin's personal opinion on a whole range of subjects, foreign and domestic. Um, the fact of the matter is that Trump and Putin did not manage to get a lot of business done. Putin certainly had his way in terms of undercutting the strength of American democracy and public faith in the process, in you know, skirting the issue of Russian culpability for election interference in 2016. But, you know was not able to rope Trump into cooperation on some of the things Russia wanted, mostly because Trump just didn't care about foreign policy very much and didn't bother if there wasn't something in it for him. So he walked out the door with a major arms control treaty about to expire. So that was like the number one burning thing on the U.S.-Russian agenda is whether New START would be renewed and if so, on what terms. Then we have the Navalny incident and the protests this past weekend, right after Biden's inauguration, led the administration to put out some very tough statements over the weekend from the State Department and and the National Security Advisor, supporting uh, Russian opposition demonstrators expressing concern about Navalny's treatment and demanding that he be immediately released. So all of that, you know, sets up a, a pretty tense conversation. And then we get this White House readout. We get it like just a a couple hours maybe after the phone call. And it's incredibly detailed and it sounds so normal. And it it starts with cooperation that they agreed they would extend New Start for five years, um, just a straight renewal with no amendments and that their teams would work together urgently to get that done by February 5th when it expires. They agreed to explore strategic stability discussions on arms control and security. And then there is a long list of American grievances with respect to Russia that Biden apparently raised in this phone call Ukrainian sovereignty, the solar winds hack, uh, Russian bounties on US soldiers in Afghanistan interference in this year's election and the Navalny poisoning. And so you can imagine Biden sort of saying, hey, Putin, let's do this deal that we both want to do. And by the way, that doesn't mean I like you. <laughs> you know, I think this is going to be a scratchy relationship, but I think that there is a lot that the Russians need from the United States right now. There's there are a bunch of ways in which they involve themselves internationally in places like Syria, where they're now bogged down, their economy is hurting, their COVID response is terrible, and they're going to need the the ballast and the kind of legitimacy that comes from cooperating with Washington. So I think Biden's got leverage.
2: One thing I thought was interesting about that readout as well, and you, and you, you had touched on it in your summary there, Tammy saying reports of Russian, Russia placing bounties on the United States soldiers in Afghanistan. Now, saying reports of isn't as, of course, a tried and true way of saying, oh, we're not confirming this. But the fact that the president brought it up in the call with Putin and the White House read that out kind of signals to me that the president says, yeah, I think this is a thing and this happened. And there's there's been a little bit of disagreement in senior reaches of the previous administration and the military over that. But he really did sort of like lay all the biggies right out on the table, uh, which I guess is the signal. It's like, yeah, we're dealing with this now and there's no statute of limitations on your chicanery. And, you know, like you said, there's a new sheriff.
0: Uh, There's a new sheriff. We got your number, baby. We're watching you like that. That was definitely how I read the, the reference to reports, because even if we don't, you know, even if there's some disagreement about the extent of this or whether it's really Russia or whatever, it is a way of saying we are paying attention. Don't you even think about this?
3: Yeah, Tammy, one thing that sort of stuck out to me was the length of the list of grievances and the varied nature of them, um, which makes it a little bit difficult to sort of suss out the the immediate priorities. Um, And so, right, there's sort of there's the broad buckets of, um, you know, stop being so aggressive, um, you know, stop interfering in our elections, stop hacking, uh, you know, our information technology infrastructure, um, you know, stop engaging in these sort of propaganda efforts, Um, you know reading that call, do you feel like there's, uh, you have a sense that no, the Biden administration is going to prioritize, uh, you know, obtaining Navalny's release um, sort of in, in the immediate days, um, right? Or, or, or that there's some piece of that, because um, at this point, there's been such an accrual of so many different sort of problems. Uh, obviously, some are going to require um, coordination with um, with European and NATO allies to sort of counter as a united front. Um, but, but reading that, other than the clear message of there's a new sheriff in town. Do you have a gut on kind of, okay? um, we have a new secretary of state, we have a new team in place. Here's here's what we're going to see the priorities, you know, in the coming weeks, you know, sort of the the immediate things, because those are going to be so symbolically important.
0: Yeah, well, Susan, I think that's a really great question and it's a tough one to answer. I think that that establishing clear priorities is crucial. And it's also challenging. Um, It's challenging in the domestic political context as well. You know, you can say to a certain extent that this readout signals where Biden's drawing a very firm line. There's a sense toward the end, it's funny that we're going to overread a call readout, but that's because we actually have a substantive call readout to read. So it says, President Biden made clear that the United States will act firmly in defense of its national interests in response to actions by Russia that harm us or our allies, which is, which includes like the Baltic states, right? So it's it's a very clear, bright line, don't screw with us, don't screw with our allies, which would suggest that something like Navalny, while high profile, is maybe not first on the list. But then you have, you know, people like Brett Stevens arguing in uh, The New York Times yesterday that if Biden really cares about human rights and democracy in American foreign policy, he needs to put people like Alexei Navalny, the dissidents, at the front of his relationships with these countries, with countries like Russia. So there's a sort of challenge there from uh, what's left of the neoconservative right you know, that they're going to judge the Biden administration on how hardcore it is on human rights and whether it's willing to sacrifice strategic cooperation with a big country like Russia for the sake of a dissident.
1: Yeah. So I just want to say in the strategic priorities department, uh, and I say this with great admiration for Alexei Navalny, There is no chance that Alexei Navalny is going to be a major strategic, uh, procuring his release is going to be a major strategic priority of the United States. It's a matter on which we have almost no leverage at all. Navalny went back of his own accord in order to provoke Putin and get arrested. And people turned out in the city of Yakutsk at 50 degrees below zero to protest. Now, if you've ever uh, unless you've been in a protest at 50 degrees below 0, you, you're kind of just playing at protesting. So, I I I think look, Vladimir Putin is not going to release somebody who can turn out people in 50 degree below weather across every major city in Russia because Joe Biden wants him to. It's just not going to happen. And Navalny knows that. He didn't go home with the expectation of U.S. protexia. And Biden's strategic objective is a series of issues in which Russia has challenged the world order and the post-World War II world order, which is to say acquisition of the of territory by the use of force. The very aggressive cyber attacks that they've engaged in, election interference in numerous countries, including this one, uh, and the strategic priority of the United States in a sane administration, which we now have, will be to rein in Russia's behavior. The collateral consequence of that may be the release of Alexei Navalny, uh, and I certainly hope domestic Russian pressure causes him to get released. But I don't think international pressure is going to be the thing that does that.
2: We should also remember just in closing, there is an American, Paul Whelan, who has been held prisoner in Russia for more than a year on what appear to be utterly fictitious charges. That wasn't mentioned in the readout, but Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, was asked about that, I think, in a press briefing the other day. And uh, I presume that that might be a place where we, hopefully if we did have some leverage, we would use it to, to try and get him back. All right. Back closer to home. It's like, it's like reruns all over again, Russia, 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 now impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. We're going to do this again. You guys. Jane, our phone call yesterday was perfect. Perfect. <laughs> perfect. It was a perfect call. Everything was perfect. My speech was perfect. The riot, not so perfect. The riot was not so perfect because they counted the votes. Yeah. It would have been a perfect riot had, you know, they they found the boxes that they were looking for. There is going to be an impeachment trial in the Senate beginning February 9th. Not clear how long that is going to take, uh, but I think we learned this week how it is likely to end. A overwhelming majority of GOP senators signaled in a vote this week that they feel that the impeachment itself is unconstitutional. So I'm kind of having a hard time thinking if you think the process is unconstitutional that you're going to vote to convict. So this raises a a very interesting question that has been nagging at me, which is why don't Democrats and Republicans who voted with him on impeachment or who feel the president should be convicted just skip the whole impeachment entirely and take a vote pursuant to the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 3 which stipulates, I won't read it all, but essentially, you know, anyone who engages in sedition or insurrection against the United States government is disqualified from withholding future office. And it seems that like kind of this framework for thinking about the impeachment has been solidified, both in the media consciousness and maybe in the congressional one as well, that You have to go through impeachment, go through a trial, acquit Donald Trump, and then take a vote on whether to bar him from future office. And from what I can tell, and I'm no fancy constitutional lawyer, that is not true. You don't have to do it that way. Um, You could take a vote pursuant to the 14th Amendment in Congress and by a simple majority say, we think it applies to Donald Trump. He would be free to challenge that in court. But it seems to me that we've got our heads screwed on this idea uh, incorrectly that we have to go through this sequence uh, of events. Susan, I'm going to kick this over to you (laughs) first uh, as our resident lawyer. I mean, am I wrong about this? I mean, is there something in the Constitution that says you can only arrive at a vote to disqualify someone from future office after having gone through impeachment? taking a vote on the article of impeachment and then taking a vote on this separate question about future office?
3: Yeah, so I don't know that you're wrong, although you're not necessarily right. I think it's an open question, sort of the precise operation of the 14th Amendment. Um, I, I do think you're wrong on this being the appropriate path forward or intended as a workaround to impeachment, conviction, and removal. So the 14th Amendment um, is a post-Civil War amendment and it's essentially designed to um, prevent a narrow category of people. And I don't have the text in front of me, but I believe it's anyone who has sworn an oath to the country, then engaged in rebellion or an insurrection from them holding public office. So it's intended to sort of, um, uh, you know, to to bar Confederates from, uh, from being able to hold public office. This really sort of specific purpose I mean I think we should be pretty uncomfortable with the idea of uh, not being able to get sufficient political support to convict and re- uh, to convict a, a president to remove him or bar him from office and instead having a bare majority workaround only because sort of one that's that's not the constitutional purpose um so maybe we could argue that there's a, there's a technical applicability here but there you know the Constitution provides for the remedy here the remedy is impeach, impeachment removal and or um, uh, barring someone from uh, from holding office in the future. And sort of inserting things that are meant to be, well, when that fails, here's other ways to bar people. That makes me pretty uncomfortable. And, you know, look, it's, I, I think we should be focused on the remedies that are clearly at hand. Also, look, it, it's going to open this whole new world of uh, sort of Congress and bare majorities of Congress being able to bar political opponents from holding office based on sort of their interpretation of, of insurrection and rebellion, it makes me a lot more, uh, far more uncomfortable to apply uh, sort of the definition of incitement um, and insurrection in, in the 14th Amendment context than it does in uh, the impeachment context, uh, only because uh, the impeachment context, I, I think it's pretty, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, um, it's plainly within sort of Congress's ability and right to define separate and apart from Supreme Court precedent. Um, as we get into the Fourteenth Amendment, I, that starts to become more and more uncomfortable to me, and I, I do think it opens the possibility for this becoming sort of a valid political tool moving forward. Um, there's one place where I could sort of imagine this working, and it may, might be less uncomfortable. That is if if there is actually a sufficiently large group of Republican senators who say, "Look, we really and sincerely believe that the impeachment is unconstitutional." That said, we do believe that he should be barred from holding for uh, future office and therefore um we you know we we can't vote to convict but we will vote to endorse uh, you know sort of a 14th amendment and, and it does have at least the normative backing of a sufficient majority um that a little bit reduces my discomfort but again that feels like fantasy to me because it goes from people sort of objecting on a very narrow and in my mind pretty thin constitutional arguments against impeachment and expecting them to embrace a far more novel um, and sort of controversial controversial. controversial uh, constitutional theory. And so I just don't think this is a path that we should be walking down.
1: I disagree with Susan about this almost completely. And I very seldom find myself outflanking Susan from the more aggressive side uh, with respect to novel constitutional interpretations. You're all Um, about
2: novel constitutional interpretations.
1: But I'm going to do it here. I say go for it. Here is a provision of the Constitution that is directly responsive to rebellions and insurrections, which to a common sense viewer is exactly what we saw on January 6th. It does not actually require an act of Congress. If Donald Trump runs for office in the future, he is going to face ballot challenges based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, whether Congress passes a law or not. And by the way, he should. And so Congress weighing in and saying we think people who materially participated in the events of January 6th are uh, insurrectionists who should be barred under Section 3 is kind of an advisory opinion by Congress more than it is a a rule. It's just saying, we think you're covered by this, which the courts would give the deference to which they felt it was appropriate. I also don't think it's an either or thing with respect to impeachment. I think that, you know, one reason Congress should invoke that section of the 14th Amendment and pass such a law is because there were office holders who were involved in this. You know, there was a West Virginia legislator newly elected. Gets elected and then comes down to Washington to try to storm the Capitol, takes pictures of himself, gets arrested. You know, why should this person be able to run for office again? And that is not something that is covered by the impeachment of Donald Trump. And so I think eventually it's gonna be up to the courts, not to Congress, whether whether section three of the Fourteenth Amendment bars anybody and who it bars. And by the way, Donald Trump would have a pretty plausible argument that he did not materially participate in the insurrection. He gave a speech to a group of peaceful protesters and then left. And some of them became non-peaceful protesters. And to whatever extent there was an insurrection, I had nothing to do with that. He would have a pretty plausible argument. But I think the argument that you can storm the Capitol uh, in support of whatever cause And there be no consequences under a provision of the Constitution that says, hey, you know, people who conduct who swear an oath to the United States and then, you know, conduct an insurrection or barred from office. I'm just that doesn't seem like like a good rule to me.
0: You know, it. It strikes me that between now and whenever those court challenges might get filed um with regard to 2024 ballot access, we're going to know more about those who did plan to storm the capitol and it may well be that the case for Donald Trump being an active co-conspirator or a participant in that will be weaker once we know all the details of what the proud boys were planning you know, inspired by the president, but not commanded by the president. Or it could be that they all, you know, tell the FBI, we did this because we, the the president told us to, he said X and Y, and the case will be like open and shut. So that's thing one is that we'll have more evidence in one direction or the other. But thing two is, and I'm sorry, guys, like the legal question is interesting And the justifications senators might use are interesting, but this is a political calculation for every Republican senator. They all want to have their cake and eat it, too. They want the Republican base, and they don't want to compete against Donald Trump. And they can't have both. You know, and so they they're not going to vote to impeach because they will lose the base. And they're also not going to vote for the 14th Amendment because they will lose the base, even though they would love to knock Donald Trump out of the running. So politically, it's just it's it's moot. I'm sorry.
2: Can I ask a question to Susan? On, are you, Susan's going to make a point, but I also want to ask you something about something you said earlier, Susan, too, which is. And it's a point well taken that there's the risk that if Congress were to take a vote under the 14th Amendment This could become a political tool whereby future majorities of lawmakers could say that we're banning an officeholder from holding office again. And so that's kind of the slippery slope argument. But why wouldn't that also be the case for impeachment, which also requires a simple majority in the House? And maybe we should expect after President Trump was impeached twice to see future House majorities impeach the president of their opposing party just because they can.
3: Yes, yeah, so I, I think we are more likely um, to see impeachments in the future. Again, I, I don't think that's a reason not to impeach. Um, and recall that uh, the constitutional structure contemplates this. It contemplates that impeachment is a lower bar um than the bar for conviction, and it um it notes this ability to bar people for, from holding office as a separate, special penalty. Right. It, it it acknowledges it as a significant enough remedy that it says, hey, you could remove. Move somebody from office, and we still don't say that you're automatically barred from holding future office. This has to be another affirmative step, another affirmative decision for Congress to make. And look, like if information comes out such that we could reasonably expect, um, you know, Donald Trump to be, uh, you know, face charges under sedition and conspiracy laws. Right? If, if we're talking about here a factual sort of a, a factual landscape in which he meets the criminal statutes um, at, at issue. Um, then, then I agree with Ben, right? Then, then Congress maybe passes a resolution expressing the sense of Congress that uh, that he falls within this, and and it could be challenged, and Donald Trump can defend himself, and um, an insurrection, you know, in rebellion is, a, I think, a, a narrow enough uh, sort of precedent to be, you know, hopefully to not come up lots and lots of times. That said. Look, I'm uh, hardly a convert to um, uh, originalism by any sense of uh, of the the word, but the, con- the Constitution has to mean something, and I-, I do think that we should be uncomfortable with an outcome based approach to things that. Clearly subverts the application and intent, and um, I, I feel that way about the Twenty-Fifth Amendment. I thought it was completely reasonable to have this conversation to talk about whether or not Donald Trump met the standards of presidential incapacity. Um, but you know, once Pence said he he didn't think he met that standard, um, the idea that there was some obligation, you know, to to sort of go over and you know above and beyond, uh, despite the fact that they that clearly the the constitutionally designated officers didn't believe that. Gen, the incapacity in, in the sense of the, of the constitutional purpose was met. I, I think that was in a, inappropriate and we shouldn't walk down this path. And, and now the 14th Amendment sort of strikes me as precisely the same thing. That's not what this tool was designed to do, unless we're talking about a, a, like a, a different set of facts, not yet in evidence, in which case we'll address them at the time. And so the more we are... Malleable here, and are attempting to um, sort of sort of distort the constitutional structure in order to achieve goals that we cannot achieve politically. And, and the core issue here is the inability to um, marshal political forces and to convince enough people in the United States that the president did in fact engage in something um, deeply destructive to to the country. Um, and and sort of marshaling political pressure to um, t- to ensure that he is impeached and convicted and sort of barred. And so I, I just, I, at the end of the day, um, I, I hope Donald Trump never runs for office again. I certainly hope he's never he's never elected to political office again. But, but the idea that this is all just an endless series of workarounds, and it's just a question of how much creativity we can apply to the problem. And we're talking about individuals' ability to participate in the democratic process. This is big stuff. This is important stuff. This is Foundational stuff. This is not an area in which you go in and start chiseling away because the remedies available to you aren't working for you at the time. And so I don't say that to diminish at all the gravity of what happened, the corrosiveness of Trump's actions, the corrosiveness of January 6th, but like. Look at at some point. This document has to mean something, um, and and the idea that any sort of any argument we can come up with is sufficient, I, I just cannot get on board with that. I
1: guess I just I'm not understanding y- your sense of why this document's use of the word insurrection does not cover the events of January
3: sixth. Do you believe that Donald Trump would fall within the criminal standard based on the, the, the sort of the public evidence at this point?
1: I do not believe Donald Trump would fall within the criminal standard of having engaged in sedition, uh, at least not that I know of. However, I think he very clearly participated materially in an insurrection within the meaning of the Section 3 of the, of the 14th Amendment, which is not defined by the criminal law.
3: I am less convinced and, and less comfortable. And I, I guess I, I should read more about sort of the precise precedent of how this has applied, but applying that definition to Trump's behavior and giving a speech in the Fourteenth Amendment context, it is the, the facts are are just not sufficient. And I'm less comfortable with Congress taking a broad and expansive sort of approach to that definition. And I could easily come up with scenarios where it could be wielded improperly and abusively in the future.
2: Just as a coda to this conversation in our talk about domestic extremism at the top, uh, my colleague Nick Miroff at The Post just alerted a story that the Department of Homeland Security issued a warning on Wednesday to alert the public about the growing risk of attacks by, quote, ideologically motivated violent extremists agitated about President Biden's inauguration and, quote, perceived grievances. Fueled by false narratives. Uh, Nick says that DHS periodically issues such advisories through its national terrorism advisory system, but the warnings have typically been generated by elevated concerns about attacks by foreign governments or radical groups and not domestic extremists. In a statement, the department said the purpose of the new bulletin was to warn about a quote, heightened threat environment across the United States that is likely to persist over the coming weeks. So we have that to look forward to. Let's move on to object lessons. Ben, why don't you go first?
1: So last week, just as we were about to record Rational Security, in fact, after we had started recording, my microphone died. And when I say died, I don't mean like... Like like dead parrot died. Like dead parrot kind it of It was died.
2: murdered.
0: And
1: <laughs> we thought... It was
0: an ex- microphone. Yeah, we thought
1: it would uh we just use a different cable and that didn't do anything. So if Tammy and I sounded a little bit tinny in last week's episode, it's because we were literally sharing one pair of iPhone uh earbuds and we were recording on uh that microphone of the Zachary's week. like, why
2: are you telling the people this?
1: <laughs> yeah well, no I'm saying don't think, Zachary, don't think Boy, last week's audio just sucked, and it was probably Zachary Frank's fault. Don't think that, because it was actually the death of a microphone that had served well, so we gave it a proper burial. And this week, I ordered a new microphone, which I will let Tammy uh, uh, describe what she thinks of it. But this microphone has uh, a wonderful quality, which is that it is omnidirectional. And so it is sitting here in between us and we can both talk and we don't have to pass it back and forth. And this show hasn't been interrupted once by it coming unplugged. There are no thunk noises as we bump it into things. Uh, And it's just hanging there delicately between us, bringing our voices to you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Shane is not like soothed by that description. I will just say... That if you've seen the TV series, The Watchmen, there is one episode in which a very, <laughs> is looking at me, <laughs> a very large sexual aid in and out of Shea case is featured. And this microphone is reminiscent of that scene.
1: Sometimes a microphone, Tamara, is just a microphone. Oh, this used to be such a family
2: podcast. Did it,
3: though? <laughs> I don't think I ever watched no. yeah, it. No. no, before
2: Dr. Manhattan's dildo showed up on the <laughs> All I can say is this microphone better be, like, fucking crystal clear. Because we have just raised expectations. Like, you better be able oh, to hear hi. a mouse fart on this track. <laughs> Where everyone's going to be like, what? It's not special.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: I don't know. Tammy, why don't you go next?
0: Oh, man. I don't know if I can top that. You know, I,
2: oh.
0: I just... Oh. Oof, man. We're not
2: doing phrasing anymore.
0: <laughs> um, I want to give a shout out to the RatSec listeners who sympathize with me for my obsession with low-flying helicopter, because over the last year, you guys have kept me abreast of so many important developments, and this week, the new Congress has brought with it, at last, hope. A coalition of one, two, three, four, five, six members of Congress from Maryland and Virginia and our non-voting representative from the District of Columbia have introduced legislation that will require. The FAA to undertake an effort to coordinate and reduce helicopter noise over the National Capital Region. All of this is proof that this wasn't just in my mind, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but this is an actual documented problem backed by data from the Government Accountability Office. And now it's going to be addressed by our united House and Senate. Please God, this legislation will pass this year. And thank you, Ratsec listeners, for making me aware.
1: I do have to say, I was outside by a fire, meeting with somebody the other day on my porch, and a helicopter came by. It was so large and so low; it really had that beginning of apocalypse now feel. Yeah, to it, where you could hear every rotation, and it just like choo-choon, choo-choon, choo, yeah. in your in your body, it was awful.
2: Did the Doors start playing?
0: <laughs> I, I mean, it
1: really, third Doors
2: reference in three weeks? Yeah. I am—he's uh, not
0: even a Doors fan.
2: I am increasingly sympathetic
1: to Tamara's war on on hashtag Thank low you. flying helicopter.
2: Well, now you know she's not crazy. I'm not. Not about Uh, this, anyway. Not about this one. Not about this one. Uh, My object this week, actually, uh, is going to be to refer you to another podcast, our sister podcast, cousin podcast, grandfather podcast, the Lawfare podcast, of course, with an interview that David Chris has that just went up today, Wednesday, with the historian for the National Security Agency, David Hatch, on Venona, or the Venona Project, if you like, or the Venona File. What should we call it? Um, but this fascinating Cold War era um, declassification of Soviet of intercepts, U.S. intercepts of Soviet encrypted communications, which is kind of one of the great. Uh, you know, early spy stories that have now been declassified and are particularly of interest to people who are sort of into the kind of signals intelligence and the techie nerd pieces and encryption and secret communications. Anyway, it's a delightful conversation. David, who is obviously followers of the podcast will know, uh, is very steeped in the history and the law of surveillance and clearly has a nerd's enthusiasm for all of this really cool technical spy history and David Hatch is just also a great explainer and it's really worth your time. It's a really fun historical podcast. It's like how like those like dumbass like history channel documentaries about the NSA. It's like how it ought to be. I mean it's not as sexy, I'm gonna say it's not as there's not like visual effects, but it's like this is a podcast, dude. Right. Exactly. Well exactly. But you listen, you were gonna make the podcast a monster truck rally, so just M- M- out. M- monster you. truck. Oh, man. You just hang out. Uh, it's, it's very, very good. Um, and speaking of podcasts, that's it for this one, you guys. Unless there's any more object lessons, I think we're done here. That big object lesson in the table there has been enough for everyone. Whew. Goodness <laughs> gracious! I have to go to church. Rational Security is, of course, the production <laughs> of the aforementioned Lawfare. You can find our show page uh at lawfareblog.com. you can also you will not find microphones like that Mm-mm. for sale. Mm. Yeah,
0: that's a G rated wholesome microphones yeah.
2: family gonna microphones. Need, like yeah, you're going to need to go to you're going to need to go to 4 seasons total landscaping and <laughs> <at> next door <laughs> if you
1: remember
2: All that you can pick that up there with yeah. a permit maybe. <laughs> oh my goodness. You can find us on Twitter at Security. Still that still not deplatformed. We're good we don't we don't tweet what we say. we no. just say it here. You can follow us on Facebook as well. um uh, we are not yet on parlor or what's the other one called goop grind gab. gab 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 rumble so, yeah, it's goop that's what it is it's goop all the cons- all the right wing nationalists are now on goop,
3: like how to cure their yeast infections with crystals. <laughs>
2: send them all there that's the answer be like seriously do it Gwyneth tells you just do it it's fine (laughs) it's all fine call me in the morning Oh, my God. When you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps others find the show, and we appreciate it. Our audio engineer long-suffering this week is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. Who
1: is rolling his eyes as we speak.
2: <laughs> if Starting now? I mean, come on. He's been through this. He knows. He knows what he signed up for, damn it. <laughs> the show is produced and edited heavily by Jack Pontia Howell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Music This Week by Biden and the Sleepy Joes with their rendition of Iggy Pop's I'm Bored.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right.
2: Yeah. Right. Right. yeah. Okay, Good Pop. Could be like Biden and the Sleepy Joes. That's a good name for a band. I like it. I like it. Is that Can like a country of band? I guess. I guess that's what that's. He probably wouldn't choose that name for himself, but it seemed to fit for this week. I don't know. Sophia yan would probably be okay with this. On behalf of my good friends Ben Widdess, Tamara Kaufman Widdess, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.